Hello and welcome to the Diction Police. I'm your host, Ellen Rissinger, an American vocal coach accompanist on the music staff of the Zemperoper in Dresden, Germany. This week, we're looking again at the Messiah, this time focusing more on the women's arias. Soprano Amanda Majeski discusses the English diphthongs through the aria Rejoice Greatly, O Daughter of Zion, and the four short soprano recitatives before it. And then Jan and Catherine McDaniel return to focus on more of the problematic diction rules that come up in The Messiah. I was just on Skype with my dad, wondering about how I would start off this episode, and I said, well, maybe I'll just talk about why I like reality television shows. And his reaction was exactly what you can imagine. What? Reality shows are killing TV which, in some cases, I do agree with. But there are a few reality shows that I think have interesting lessons that they can teach us as performers. Take Top Chef, for instance. It's a group of very talented people put into creatively challenging situations. Make your best fish meal, but with no heat. Take an old staple like meatloaf and modernize it. Or try to make whatever you're cooking look like something completely different. Isn't that kind of what we do? Take an aria that many sopranos have recorded and make it our own? Maybe not modernize it per se, but put our own personality into the character? Sing it with piano instead of an orchestra? Or maybe actually modernize it in terms of the production that we're doing at the time? Project Runway is similar. Use flowers and hardware to make a dress that we don't know is made up of flowers and hardware. Don't we have small startup companies all over the world putting on opera with either limited orchestration or just with piano, with a limited budget for set and costumes? And don't we expect them to make something that doesn't look like the budget was quite that limited? But the show that I think takes Top Chef one step further is the next Food Network star. In this program, they not only have to cook well, the contestants also have to have something that they specialize in, plus, they have to be able to talk about it in a limited time frame for a TV segment. It's fascinating to watch these people who seem like they have a whole lot of confidence melt down when they only have 30 seconds left to explain how to make an entire meal, or to see how they cope when they get frustrated that something's gone awry. This is the show that I find most relevant in terms of what we have to be able to do. I remember at the beginning of my career accompanying an audition for a baritone who was much further ahead of me in his career and being stunned when he mumbled his way through it. In practical, everyday situations of rehearsals and performances, he was extremely confident. But when it came to introducing himself in an audition, he was just as insecure as I was, and it made him seem younger and unsure of himself to the people listening, which automatically puts him at a disadvantage. Watching the Food Network star, you can see that happen to people too. People who seem very confident start to stumble and stall out when the camera goes on, while people who don't seem to be able to string two words together can entertain an entire audience. But you also see them grow every week through these challenges, and oftentimes it gives me ideas on how to practice being better spoken, being more open and friendly, and just being more myself in uncomfortable situations. Because that's what people are really looking for in every interview and in every job, not just opera. They want to see who we are. The other reality show that is my guilty pleasure is America's Next Top Model. I have seen every episode of ANTM since the beginning. Okay, well, I skipped the extra episode with the mean catfights that don't have anything to do with the competition. But in any case, I do watch every episode with the challenges in the pictures. And again, maybe I'm crazy, 
but I find quite a bit of that show relevant to what we do. Tyra always says, find your light, know your angles. Do you know how many people I've seen on a stage who don't know where the light is? And who don't realize that they actually aren't standing in the light? It's kind of amazing. Know your angles. Don't we have to know what roles suit us best? What style works best for us? Which language we sing or coach best in? That doesn't mean we don't work on the other styles and languages, but it does mean that we start with what we do best and branch out from there. And heck, I've even had a few people smize in master classes just to get some energy to come out of their faces. It works. Now, I'm not saying that everyone has to be a reality show junkie like I am, nor am I saying that these are the only reality shows that I watch. The point is that we can learn a lot about how to improve ourselves from very unlikely sources. So if you enjoy watching them anyway, make sure that you aren't just mindlessly watching, but that you analyze them and try to see how you can utilize these lessons that they're learning in your life. You can find links to the text and the score for today at the blog at www.thedictionpolice.com. Don't forget the the. You can also follow the Diction Police on Facebook and on Twitter at Diction Police. Our text is Rejoice Greatly, O Daughter of Zion, including the four short soprano recitatives before the chorus before it. One thing that I find fascinating about the Messiah, unlike many oratorios, there's no narrative voice leading the story along to the arias. Instead, each person tells their part of the story from the Bible. The recitatives we find here are some of the only ones where quoted text is used, in that the soprano quotes what the angels say. In listening to the interview, I realized that after three days of coaching and hanging out with each other, Amanda and I were talking really fast, <laughs> so I hope it's still clear. There were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh unto thee! He is the righteous Savior, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. That was Amanda Majeski reading the soprano parts from the beginning of the Messiah with Rejoice Greatly. And I thought we would talk about the diphthongs. We, we get, again, as is usual, all of the diphthongs pretty much all the time in every piece you ever find. Yes. And let's just start with the, the bright ah to the i, the i sound. I, yeah. Yeah, and we find this all over, even in the first recitative. By night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, then both of them in a row. Yeah, by night. Yeah. <laughs> and the interesting thing to me is that the diphthong, it's not the same as in German. It doesn't get to a closed e, i, e, i. Yeah. It's more open than that. By night. It's, it's definitely softer. It's, it's less harsh, and it kind of flows from one vowel to the other instead of chopped you know exactly it gets and we find it in abiding he is the righteous savior exactly yeah. and here that's not righteous no. it's righteous righteous very soft gentle yeah exactly the next diphthong we come to is the a which is closed e followed by an open i which actually madeline marshall does the open a 
followed by an open eye in words like angel mm-hmm. came they afraid yeah and then you, hear, you don't say afraid no you say that afraid. sounds that sounds artificial too Doesn't afraid it? afraid yeah david savior savior is an interesting one because we have a j glide after the v after the savior v. yeah uh I'm saying like, greatly and in stuff like that, greatly, would you explode these consonants? Greatly. Yeah, I think I would, actually. I think the, the word might be lost in a, in a large hall if I just said it greatly. Yeah. Like, greatly, just in, in the, the line of the music to get the word. Exactly. Yeah. And as I, I like to say, spit at people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The next diphthong is, of course, the O, which Americans have a problem with in every other language because yeah. we can't just say O. Yeah. We say O. You want to change the, the vowel. The, uh, yeah. <sighs> It's my problem in German. <laughs> I don't do that in German. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, in Italian and in French and everybody else, they all yeah. have these pure vowels and we're like, yeah, this one has to be a diphthong, and right? whenever you're singing a, a, the same vowel on two notes, you want to oh. change it both times. Yes. It's frustrating. <laughs> yeah. So we have shown, behold, host. And I love the way you say behold, even when you say it now, because you said it with a front L. Oh, hilarious. <laughs> my, trend, my trend lately. <laughs> behold. No, I think because that's another thing that's hard for us as Americans. We say oh. Yeah, in the back. It's not really the healthiest thing to sing, I don't think. It's, I don't know. Well, that's the thing. And it sounds funny when you sing it in English, I yeah. think, even. Yeah, yeah. So pull the L's front. Behold. Those are the dangerous ones when it's after an O. Because then we really, the tongue is already in a back position. We right. go, behold. Right. Yeah. And phonetically, again, just like the I and the A, it doesn't go to O. Yeah. It gets to an O. It's to an, it's to an opener sound. Right. Right. We don't have the Italian pure O, o. when it happens. Behold. Mushes together a little bit. <laughs> exactly. For some reason, I think the ow is the one that I think of the most often as the diphthong. I don't know why. Yeah. But I had a hard time coming up with it. Maybe it's like case. the most severe, I don't know. Yeah. About, shout. And roundabout, because there's somewhere where there's yeah, a... Yeah, roundabout. And the glory of the Lord shone roundabout them. Yeah. And then, of course, we have the best one, because it's the one you're stuck singing in the aria the whole time. <laughs> the open O followed by the I, mm-hmm. which we get in the aria right at the beginning, which is... Rejoice. Exactly. <laughs> so the question is... Of course, every time you say rejoice, there's a, there's a coloratura on it. Oh, I know. Isn't that just awesome? So do you stick with the open <laughs> O sound on that? Yeah, I or do. Do you head towards the A more or do you stay with the A? I, I usually lend more towards an, an A sound more than an O just because I feel like the O, for me, for my voice, I make it too much with my mouth and then it uh-huh. doesn't allow me to get the, the fast notes out. Exactly. So so I tend to open it a little bit more, but then put the ois right at the end. Exactly. That diphthong yeah. right there. Yeah. And okay, while we're on the subject of coloratura, <laughs> yeah. I will go back and talk about diction for a second, but there's a lot of coloratura in this aria. Yes. <laughs> and the phrases go on forever. They really, really yeah. do. How do you, how would you go about telling somebody to practice coloratura? How do you practice coloratura? Uh, well, I have to start it slow mm-hmm. and, and just kind of sing it as a nice legato line to start mm-hmm. just so that I know how, how all the notes kind of feel in placement and that I have all of them correct, that mm-hmm. they're not slipping in and out. And and then once you have it nice and slow, I, I speed it up eventually. And, you know, I used to practice with the metronome and I think it really helps because then when you get a conductor, you don't know exactly what tempo the conductor is going to take it. Even on the day of the performance, you're not exactly sure. Exactly. But when you practice with the metronome, you get used to 
all different tempos and yeah. doing them in a very structured way and yeah. not taking too much time but staying within the phrase and learning to be musical within the beats exactly two other things is i want to talk about too uh, there's the delta because okay. in, we get in this piece we get the mm -hmm. ths that are voiced 99% of the time. Yeah. Actually, in this piece, literally 99% of the time. Yeah. The only TH that I found that was unvoiced was cometh. Cometh. Yeah. Yeah. That one would be unvoiced because it's at the end of the cometh. word yeah. in mm -hmm. that sense. And there's no E after it to make it like loathe, breathe. Right. right. But pretty much everything else here is the, right? Mm-hmm. There. Both theirs. <laughs> <laughs> the, they, then, this, thy. Mm-hmm. Here's my with, question. Yeah. With with the because it comes together here. And suddenly there was with the angel. Suddenly there was with the angel. Oh, I I've never actually voiced that. But maybe it sounds better when you do it. That's interesting. With isn't the it? angel. Yeah. Because I think it's good to stay voiced because then everything's voiced. Yeah, and it kind of, it's kind of a sweeping line on it. There was with the angel a multitude. Yeah. It sounds pretty. It sounds easier to sing. Yeah. yeah. In the B section of the R.A. we have, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. Heathen, yeah. So even there we have the, the, the voiced one. Yeah, heathen. People don't say that word that often Not anymore. Often. Yeah. Unless you're, unless you're calling someone a heathen. Yeah, exactly. In, in jest or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You heathen. You haven't been done that. And I wonder if you don't, especially in a word like heathen, if you don't have to sing the, the almost a little bit longer, you know, if you're in a big hall. Yeah, you do. And to kind of keep it in line with the, the vowels, too. To yeah. Makes a nice little pretty legato. Yeah. Tapered ending. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> in the aria, that was the second thing I wanted to talk about. We start out with rejoice, not rejoice, right? Rejoice, rejoice. Yeah. Yeah. Rejoice, rejoice. <laughs> sounds wrong. It sounds... It's too pinchy. Funny. Yeah, too pinchy. Yeah. Yeah. And it won't sing as well. Right. And you have to, I think, remember that you're going to rejoice. So if you say rejoice, it emphasizes that first syllable a little too much. Exactly. And the same thing with the second sentence of this, the aria. Behold. Yeah. So it's not behold, it's yeah. behold. Yeah. And again, with a nice bright front L. Isn't that nice? <laughs> yeah. Oh, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> the schwi happens at the ends of words. And we have that here. In, let me see if I can figure out where I, where I found that before. In, in the third recitative, it's not city. City, yeah. It's city. City. Well, yeah, I city. city. <laughs> city. <laughs> but you would not sing city, city right? Uh, in the city of David. No, I wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. I'd explode it a little bit more. Exactly. Yeah. And the same thing with, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. Heavenly host. Exactly. Yeah. And again, it's not heavenly. That's a tricky one because it's kind of. Heavenly host. It's an on two or uh, two, two notes instead of three. Yeah. Yeah. The heavenly. Yeah. One last thing, if you when you get to good tidings, when we have a D followed by a T, in the third recitative, this is fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings. Good tidings. Good tidings. I can see both. Uh, good tidings. Good tidings. It almost feels no. too much by good. Too much good, good tidings. tidings. Oh, great joy. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting one. one. It's it's, yeah. one, it's one to contemplate and maybe yeah. try both and see how it feels if it, if it doesn't feel too hectic right. to do good tidings. Yeah. If you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, we talked about whether or not to use American or British diction. And the upshot was we should probably use British diction. But if the person paying you wants American, then use American. The sounds that would change in the British received pronunciation from today's episode, flock, in the phrase keeping watch over their flocks by night, changes from the dark ah to the backwards dark ah, 
The word not in fear not does the same. The word all, A-L-L, in the phrase which shall be to all people would change from a dark A to the open O. And at the end of the recitatives, the word God in praising God and saying would also change from a dark A to the backwards dark A. Under the topic of diphthongs, we use the word shown, S-H-O-N-E. But I've just found out that this word, too, would be different in British RP from the American diphthong. Unlike the word S-H-O-W-N, which is a diphthong in both pronunciations, in RP, the word S-H-O-N-E would be phoneticized as long squiggly S, followed by the backwards dark A, and then N. So it's not a diphthong at all. As you can see, the shift from dark A to that backwards dark A is very standard between British and American diction. If you need a refresher on which vowels make that shift, check out the section on short O in Jason Adecki's worksheet of pronunciation shifts that's posted at the blog page by episode 57. When I first asked Amanda to be on the podcast and talk about Rejoice Greatly, the first thing she said to me was that she used the coloratura for this aria as her warm-up for months, just to make sure that she was perfectly clean on it. Her advice about coloratura is exactly the same advice that I would give. Work on it slowly and with legato, making sure that every note is in line. And only when every note feels perfectly aligned should you begin to notch it up. I was thrilled when she mentioned the word metronome. For some reason, we all think that a metronome is a crutch and that if we use it, then we're not a good musician. I know that I was loath to tell my piano teacher in grad school that I used a metronome when practicing my Chopin etude until the moment he suggested it. In truth, exactly the opposite is true. Using a metronome can improve our skills as a musician if we use it properly. You don't just want to put it on and let it make the beat for you in the background somehow. When you put the metronome on, make sure that you still subdivise and internalize the beat and try to stick with it as perfectly as you can. Like Amanda said, you can never be quite sure what tempo the conductor will take on any given day. I've seen some performances that were as much as 10 minutes difference from one show to the next. So being rock solid at several tempos in coloratura can be a huge help. Once you've learned something that way, you'll usually find a sweet spot of tempo for your voice and being able to tell the conductor, oh, this seems to work for me at 112 or 116 can sometimes really help out because it shows that you've thought about it. And then if the conductor wants you to change it, you're also still prepared. We talked about the Velta phonetic letter, which is the voiced TH sound. The word with is really interesting because no one seems to realize that we even have the possibility to voice it. And it's not something I've ever really looked up in detail, so I just did that now. Catherine LaBeouf says that the final TH of with, W-I-T-H, should match the quality of the following consonant. So if it's followed by an unvoiced consonant, it should be unvoiced, for example, with fire. If it's followed by a voiced consonant or a vowel, it should be voiced with a song or with zest. However, Madeline Marshall wants it voiced all the time, except in the case that it's followed by an unvoiced TH. She actually has a specific rule for with followed by a word that starts with another TH. There she says we should only say the second TH sound. So with things would be unvoiced, but with those would be voiced. No matter which rule you follow, therefore, in the case that we have here, we should be using a voiced delta, since with 
is followed by the voiced th of the. And suddenly there was with the angels, with the added bonus of it being more legato. I had wanted to talk about diphthongs in this episode because there are a ton of them and it's been a while since we talked about them. The English language is riddled with diphthongs, which makes it difficult for us in other languages sometimes. As you heard, we don't do them like Italians, so both of the sounds aren't as strong, and they sort of glide from one sound to the next, rather than being two separate sounds. They also don't go to a closed vowel the way German diphthongs do. The diphthongs in English are bright a ah, followed by open capital I, as in brightly, depending on the source, closed or open e, followed by open capital I, as in angel and they, also, depending on which resource you're using, dark or bright, ah, followed by the open cookie u, as in roundabout. Closed o, followed by open u, as in shown, if you're American and not British, and host. And open o, to open capital I, as in rejoice. For more about diphthongs in English, check out episode 17 of the podcast. If you've already listened to last week's episode, then you heard my discussion with Jan and Catherine McDaniel from the faculty of the Bass School of Music at Oklahoma City University. This is the rest of that conversation, and we also get more into the concept of the shui, which originally came from Catherine. While, we're on, while we were okay. talking about T's and R's and what comes after a T, the other thing I wanted to ask uh-huh. about was righteous... T-ash, righteous, yeah. Righteous, not, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't denunciate that like we would tree or some of the ones that we would separate the ch sound? No, actually, that's one of the words, as I recall, that Madeline used to say, treats as a special case. Okay. Because righteous, righteous, to to turn that T-J glide, she, she actually says this is an exception to that, like, futia, futia, but righteous is its own thing. Okay. And, and I, I, I agree, and I think you agree, Catherine. I do, yeah, and I think the reason why people want to put that J glide in there is they, I don't know, they see the E or something, right. uh, the spelling. Well, and it, I mean, there can be, there are no rules of spelling in English. Yeah. It's horrible. And, I would hate to learn our language, you know, as a second language for <laughs> pronunciation. But. That, but there is a paragraph somewhere. You have to read the entire book to find it. But the, there is a paragraph about that word. Yeah. Well, I will find that because I have mine sitting right in front of me, actually right behind you. It's supporting my iPad. <laughs> but there, okay, thou shalt break them. Again, there is a place, there is a case yeah. for an R, for a rolled R. Of course, absolutely. It's just, it's the, the word itself suggest that it that that's the way it should be done yeah because it sounds stronger yes and and i guess we should probably talk about i-r-o-n and that because i've actually encountered people who fight about that word uh-huh which just when we just say it of course we would say iron uh-huh. It's the, it's the er again. Yeah. Uh, yep. you know, and, 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 you know, it, it, it's set, I believe, <laughs> I hyphen R-O-N in most of the editions. And so, oh, and that's helpful. And so the argument, of course, is, well, you know, I know we say iron, but that, that the word really is iron, iron, with a flipped R. But, uh, you know, I coach it, you know, Catherine coaches it too, I think, as a triphthong with an N. Iron. Triphthong with an N. Yeah. And that's actually... For that triphthong, one of the memory words, ion, ion, that we use to, to teach the triphthong. Yeah. So if you were going to phoneticize that for our gentle listeners. Ah, uh, that's the, the father, father ah. Uh. Capital I. 
schwa and the letter n yeah exactly. I, uh, I, uh, because we have basically we have a diphthong with the schwa at the end of it right right which is all both the triphthongs in That's english right. are that yeah yeah well it, the triphthong though is like for fire you know uh, things uh, like that but this actually has the O-N is the schwa, the un, un yeah, and then the I, I is, I, uh, so it yeah. really is, a, it really is a diphthong plus a schwa, mm -hmm. yeah. there's a difference. Yeah, and then, well, then, uh, I noticed for the mezzo, or, or I guess in old school performances for the bass, but who may abide, the word fire, or yeah. he is like a refinest fire. And there we have our triphthong, there we have our actual oh. triphthong. Yeah, uh-huh. And, uh, and of course, that's also a difficult word to deal with because uh, I'm trying to think if there's, I, I guess there's never a melisma on that because the, the melisma is always on refiners. You're right, it's on refiners, you're right. There are, there are just usually a couple of notes on the, on the fi. Uh, but I find that when I work with singers, native, native English speaking singers, they tend to have trouble with those kinds of sorts of things simply because they've never thought about what are the components. And I, I often say, pretend that this isn't your language, that you're singing IPA for a language you don't know, and almost all of those problems are more easily solved when they break it down and say, okay, well, there's an ah, F, ah, mm -hmm. and at the very end, there's an I, yeah. uh. Exactly, yeah. and they basically come together. Those are the two sounds yeah. that come at the end of it all together. Right. You travel with the ah. Yeah. The ah is what you travel with. Yeah, and I know for me, when because I, I know you're saying at the end of it, it's fire, and I try to get people, it's, it's not easy to make them do this, but I do try to make them sing the ah all the way until the last note and sing the last right. note on ah first. Uh, on the yeah. on the off, so on the so, down, so on it's the not, cut off. It's yeah. not a two-syllable uh, uh, word. Uh, yeah. It's not a two-syllable word. Exactly, yeah. so it doesn't become fire. Uh, yeah. 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 yeah, then you uh -huh. have the stress in the wrong place. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. that's, that's just one of those thorny things that happen. And, and, it's, <laughs> and it's really hard because our natural instinct is to make it into a two-syllable word. We want to do it that way. Right. And that happens with power, flower, that's the other triphthong. Right. All those words, yeah. the same thing happens. And of course, some composers actually set them. I always say Britain is very inconsistent about setting the word flower. Flower. I when I coach Rape of Lucretia, mm. that aria, the, the give him Flowers. this orchid, is, is set sometimes as a two-syllable word and some, sometimes as a one-syllable word. Britain himself was on the fence, you might say, about, yeah. about right. that. Right. Yeah. Trying to convince someone that there's actually no W in that word. Right. Exactly. <laughs> oh. A real problem sometimes, yeah. Exactly. Uh, let's see, I, I made a couple of notes here. Uh, these are just peripheral things. Let's see. But who may abide the day of his coming and who shall send when he appeareth is, is one of those things that, that very few singers now, these days think to do without being told. Again, their WHs, it's a very easy rule. Say the H. It is. It is. WH is HW, or it's. With now, the exception of the word who. Yeah, with. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> Where you're already saying the H anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Exactly. That's actually on, on our exam. We underline the WH, and of course they the, the they they instinctively put the uh, inverted W, and, uh, and then, we, then we say no, no. It's not whoo. No. It's not whoo. <laughs> yeah. So for everybody who's going to the Bass School of Music, when you take your final, that's a question. Uh -huh. Now you know. <laughs> now you'll see yeah. how many of your students listen to the podcast. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> And then, let's see, I, I wrote down that dwell versus that dwell. In other words, whether to implode or explode. And I think those things, at least I think those are case-by-case case 
situations. Exactly, because we had a question with with um, good tidings. Right. Uh -huh. that, good tidings. Because that dwell, I think the Tiosos needs to be strong, but with good tidings, you could almost right. make a case that it could run together because we also have that, for behold, I bring you good tidings. Right. Right. And that's to me. That's a that's a, a col I call that colonated. Where if you're transcribing it, right. the D would have that IPA colon, the two triangle colon, yeah, between it and the T, which would Im Im imply implosion. Yeah, yeah. Good tidings, and I think you know. I always say the rule of thumb is if it sounds what I call dictiony, it's too much. Yeah. And, and I think it depends on the tempo, the the tessitura, the note values. And the drama, the relative drama yeah. of it. So it depends on how quickly it is. You know? uh -huh. Actually, my brain was going, oh, thou, that tellest. That tellest and versus that tellest. No, I always have a rule about T's like that. You don't ever want t, right? No? That tellest. And you sing that all the time, that aria. Uh -huh. you, that, oh, the, that tellest. That tellest. Oh, uh -huh. yeah, you never want that sound, it's just sprinkler yeah. sound. There is a T. Yeah, it's, it's just, just imploded. That tellest. Yeah, right. well, and, and I have the same thing in, in German, actually. When you're working with a foreigner, you're trying to say abbiegen. It's not abbiegen, it's abbiegen. You have to actually literally stop the sound. Right. Even right. if you don't think about imploding it, just stop making noise. <laughs> right. Stop part of the plosive consonant. The thing that builds the pressure up has to do its job. Yeah. It has to stop the flow of air. Exactly. And, and it makes the word then understandable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and clearly makes it unvoiced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a real problem, and it's an increasing problem. The BDG finals. I'm so glad you said this because I was totally going to talk about that. I was looking through my, my Madeline Marshall today and had written oh. at the top of that chapter, bed bug. That that oh, was our course. mnemonic for remembering this. Uh-huh. And That's I, right. I had gone through some of them and, and realized we have to talk about this needs a schwa out. Well, I like an I. I don't like the uh because I feel like it points the voice down. But there has to be a shadow hell. Right. There must. Otherwise, it's it's uh, unvoiced and it's the wrong sound. Yeah. And this, this was something that when I was coming of age, this was not a problem. But it's become an increasing problem across the board with all of our students. They'll, they'll be very comfortable singing God. So they stop phonating slightly before they need to, and the result is a T. Which makes you sound German. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I wrote down God with us, because exactly. that's the place in Messiah where that happens. I forget, that's at the end of a recitative. And it, talking about, you know, what kind of, what kind of vowel you want to think, the way I describe um, a schwa in general to my students is that the sensation of a schwa is nothing in your articulators. You know, you you, you have things that are that, that you activate your lips for, and you have things that you activate your tongue for. For schwa, nothing. But you do have voice that's happening. Yeah. So if you're doing a schwa, you know, the sh a shadow neutral vowel on the end of of a, a B D or a G, God, you're. Uh, you're not supposed to be doing anything. I think the, the thing that people do is they make it a housetop. They think schwa and they say, God, duh. Yeah. Which is, I think what you're saying, you're responding to, you don't want them dropping their jaw yeah. like that. I didn't get to talk to you about the shui. I mean, my little thing that, that I made up. And, it, and it's, it's only for the final Y and IES because okay. I discovered that my students, since we were IPAing those as capital I, 
they were thinking capital I when they first learned capital I. They learned the vowel that's in the word him. Exactly. And so they're saying lady, and I'm, I'm trying to explain to them the reason why it's capital I and not lowercase I is because lowercase I is a very stressed vowel, and the articulation of it is sides of the tongue against the top molars, and it's very, that's the sensation, and you can't do that without highly stressing, so that's why we don't do it. But I wanted them to think about those final Ys and IES as little I unstressed. Yeah. So I said, it's kind of like a schwa, but it's an E, so I called it a schwe. Exactly. And I, uh, I was going to call it a shui on the thing, and I thought if I say shui, they're going to think it's spelled with two E's. That's why I wanted to say a shui, so they at least see, know the spelling of it. <laughs> I know, yeah. And so, yeah, the point is, it, to the singer, it feels like E, but it's unaccented, so lady and ladies. But, you know, we do have unaccented syllables that do take the capital I, like beneath all of those prefixes. The rejoice, because, well, yeah, we have the rejoice and behold. Uh-huh. Exactly, and those aren't those aren't shui's. And the reason I just called it a shui is I thought I wish we had a different symbol for this. It should be like cursive capital I. You know, it kind of has a little schwa look about it. You know, well, what about just an upside down I? Yeah, that would be good. Yeah, that's, that'd be that's great. That's following the principle of the of the IPA. Exactly, because yeah. then it's just the upside down version of the closed vowel. The shui comes up in every valley because you know handle setting the the text. Awkwardly, Absolutely. putting notes on higher notes and and longer notes invites a closed vowel. And yeah. then, of course, if they see the, and they try to sing a capital I, every valley. Yeah, that's not the right. That's no, not the right. No, it doesn't yeah. sound like a word. So that we really are missing a symbol. Yeah, we're missing a symbol there. The other issue that I have with the open I is that we, when we speak an open I, depending on the dialect in English, you get almost a hem or with. Uh, exactly. They turn it to epsilon, and I'm always explaining to my students that it's a very close neighbor to the lowercase I. It's still closed feeling. That's it. It has to have a point to it. If we don't get a point to it, it's going to go sort of straight up and down and stay in the mouth and not be heard. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I was so glad to be able to discuss the shui more in-depth with Catherine since it is her concept. And that brought us back to the aria we discussed last week, Every Valley. Both words end with an unstressed e sound, which is the shui, or as I said before, the shui, so that we remember that it's spelled S-C-H-W-I. On an earlier episode, I also thought that that prefix syllable R-E, B-E, and D-E was a shui, but it's not. That is actually an open capital I. So I'll have to mark that in the post at the blog, too. As we said, Madeline Marshall transcribes that final schwi as a plain old open capital I, while Catherine LaBeouf uses a lowercase i with a line through it. Since I use that symbol in Russian for that e vowel, I try to avoid using the same phonetic letter when it's not the same or a similar phonetic sound. So I think my idea of an upside-down lowercase i, which probably also looks like an exclamation point, while technically incorrect to the International Phonetic Alphabet Association, makes the most sense to me. Again, you can use whatever letter you choose for these sounds in your own transcription. What we're looking for are common means by which we can discuss the sounds with each other, and then transcribe them to make the most oral sense to us. I did look up the word righteous in Madeline Marshall's book, and sure enough, it's right there on page 119. This is a word that I would have immediately pronounced correctly, 
until I started seriously studying diction, and then I probably would have overthought it. So I'm happy to be able to find a specific rule telling us what to do, which makes life much simpler. I used to date a very handsome Greek man, and while I was learning Greek, and yes, we do have some Greek episodes coming up soon, he was also taking English lessons. Once in a while, he would say to me on the phone, I am very tired, instead of I'm very tired. It may look that way to a foreign eye, but we don't separate these words before the R. So why should we, as English speakers, not maintain that same rule in the triphthong iron, I-R-O-N, in thou shalt break them? As I said last week, for some reason in the Messiah we don't trust our ears, but maybe we should. The first time I ever heard about triphthongs was in Dr. Robert Page's choir at Carnegie Mellon, where he insisted that we sing the word O-U-R as dark ah, open you, schwa, awa. This holds true for the words we mentioned, like flower and power, flower and power, none of which have a W in their phonetics. Glides like W and J can actually only be glides before a syllable with stress, and the schwa is, by its definition, unstressed. Good tidings. I like Jan's rule that things shouldn't sound too diction-y. So if you sing good tidings, and you feel that it sounds too much like you're just popping out consonants rather than really saying words, feel free to simplify that to good tidings. And Catherine had an interesting point about not exploding two T's in a row like that tellest good tidings to Zion. According to Madeline Marshall, when final and initial T come together, we actually have the choice as to whether or not we want to implode or explode that first T, depending on the speed of the music and the importance and the formality of the words. In the case of O Thou That Tellest, you could probably make an argument for both choices. But if you do choose to implode the first T, again, make sure to actually stop the sound. It can't be that tellest. Instead, think of a double consonant in Italian like patti, just not dentalized. You stop the sound, which builds up the air to make the following T more plosive, that tellest. Which brings me to bedbug. I had written at the top of one of the chapters in my Singer's Manual of English Diction the word bedbug. I wasn't very clear in the interview. This mnemonic contains the consonants that require a shadow vowel in order to make them voiced, B, D, and G. I know that I've talked about this before on the podcast, but it bears repeating so that you can defend yourself against people who tell you they don't want shadow vowels. I personally like an open capital I a little bit as that shadow vowel, while Catherine and Jan want the schwa. Whatever you're thinking of using for the shadow vowel, make sure that it's there and that it's not pulling the voice out of alignment. And that's our show for today. Next week, we'll have bass Maurizio Muraro discussing Italian diction with us. In the meantime, to find biographies for Amanda Majeski and Jan and Catherine McDaniel, or if you have any questions or comments for me, Ellen Rissinger, please visit the blog at www.thedictionpolice.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please go to iTunes and give it a high rating so that others can find it and benefit from it. Thanks for listening. See you next week.